Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists and food makers, farmers, authors and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good weekend to you food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. If you have a taste for life, well, then this is your show. It's my goal to satisfy your cravings. Today, we're going way beyond mere eating and drinking. I'm on a mission to find new experiences, emerging trends, and to bring you the best interviews and products and insight into the wide world of food and wine. So welcome to my table. This is your culinary and lifestyle show where I deliver deliciousness every weekend. So mark your calendar and be sure to tune in. If you happen to have missed a show, don't worry though. My podcasts are posted on iTunes and you can find a direct link at chefjamie.com where you will find an arsenal of recipes to fill every day with fabulous flavor. We have a full plate coming up. I am delighted to tell you that David Leet is back. You know him from the famed Leet's Culinaria, of course, and he always brings a culinary lesson of insight and inspiration. So you know it's instrumental to making strawberry rhubarb jam or pie, but what exactly is rhubarb and can it do more than make tasty desserts? Well, yes, it can. We are going to hopefully wax poetic on rhubarb coming up and... We're dishing and sipping and savoring because Paul Callum Carrion is back, of course, of the Wine of the Month Club, but one of the most prized wine palettes anywhere. And so I pose a question to you. Does the glass matter? The glass that you're sipping from? Well, yes, it does. So we're going to talk about the history and evolution of glassware, and in fact, a really interesting uh, museum exhibit that will take you almost 2,000 years back. It's for wine lovers, no doubt, so stay tuned. But first, I like to share culinary discovery, I should say, on this show. So I kick off with tips and tricks to help you navigate around your kitchen like a pro, make your dishes come alive with flavor, And if you're like me, you use a lot of Parmesan cheese. Uh, If I didn't have my wits about me, I'd probably put Parmesan on everything. Now, there's Parmigiano-Reggiano, which is the hard, gritty texture, fruity and nutty in taste, the older it is or the more aged. And then there's Grana Padano, often considered the king of Parmesan cheeses, aged a minimum, by the way, of 18 months, made in northern Italy around the Po Valley, where they must have really good cows because it's really delicious, in my opinion. Uh, But no matter the Parmesan you choose, I suggest that you buy good quality cheese and you grate it yourself right down to the rind using a microplane grater. But you want to save the rinds, of course, because if you've been throwing away your rinds, well, then you're missing out on putting them to a delicious second use. Now, as you collect the rinds, I save them in a reusable plastic bag and I throw them in the freezer. And by the way, you can buy rinds in the supermarket uh, today. Uh, Since the cheesemonger is smart enough to usually save them, they sell them to you in bulk. We've come a long way. Uh, But they are a huge flavor booster. 
So you transform those collected ends of cheese into these rich, delicious dishes because the rinds add this subtle yet funky depth to so many things. Now, you can actually make a Parmesan broth just by simmering the rinds in water. I reduce mine by half, so it takes a while to simmer down. I stir it every now and then to keep the rinds from sticking to the bottom of the pot, and then I strain it, and I'll use the broth in um, anything, uh, you know, vegetable or bean-based that needs a boost of umami flavor. Now, I have seven other great ways to use rinds, if you're ready. Uh, You should always throw them into tomato sauce when it's cooking. They impart some serious flavor. And then you pull them out and discard them, of course, when the sauce is done. Um, I think it's a wonderful way to uh, really create depth in a tomato sauce, but also to cut down on the acid. We add carrots or sometimes a teaspoon of sugar, right, to create a balance of flavor. But those rinds of Parmesan take it to a whole new level. Now, you can also take the Parmesan rinds and place them in a mason jar and pour olive oil over them. Maybe you could perhaps add some garlic cloves too and make Parmesan-infused olive oil, which is great for dipping bread into. Uh, You should always throw them into a bean soup or a minestrone, and then you just discard them like you do the bay leaf when you're done cooking the soup. Take your Parmesan rinds and throw them into a pot when you're making any kind of stock. So let's say uh, you had a rotisserie chicken for dinner. You took the carcass, threw it in a pot, added um, onion cut in half, some carrots, a couple celery stalks, an aging shallot, who knows, uh, sprigs of thyme, whatever you need to add to clean out your produce bin in the fridge. Well, throw in a Parmesan rind and that stock gets an extra ounce of flavor. Uh, When you're making stews in the colder months, uh, like my beef bourguignon or uh, coco vin, anything that's low and slow, long cooking time, a Parmesan rind will add dimension. Then I love to flavor um, artichokes with them. So I'll cook them uh, in chicken broth because, by the way, water has no flavor, um, and lemon juice, and then a Parmesan cheese rind, and it's really delicious. Uh, You could put a rind into the pot when you're cooking risotto or other rice, and I'll say it does... um, sort of lessen, I guess, the need for additional Parmesan. Well, you're always going to add some Parmesan, but you don't need to add as much. It it really infuses the flavor into the rice. And then lastly, if you want to make the best tomato soup ever, make it super cheesy and throw in a piece of the Parmesan rind. And, And I will guarantee that they'll be asking for seconds, no doubt. Now, when it comes to adding the flavor of Parmesan goodness to your dishes with, you know, straight Parmesan. I have a recipe posted at chefjamie.com for an eight-minute pressure cooker risotto that is out of this world. Um, I use an electric pressure cooker, and you'll need one to create this Italian-approved risotto. It comes out creamy and delicious every time, like the original, but it is a far faster process, and it cuts out all the usual stirring, which who wouldn't love that, right? You could consider grating Parmesan cheese in a heavy dose. I should say you should consider grating Parmesan cheese in a heavy dose over cauliflower florets or even a cauliflower steak and then roast it high heat in the oven. You get a really umami rich side dish. You could do the same with potatoes. 
roast them with cheesy goodness. Parmesan chicken cutlets, I love. A good coating of grated Parmesan and a squeeze of lemon, luscious. And then I throw Parmesan into scrambled eggs. I just think it it adds a a salty tang that I love. And I cut back on the salt, by the way. Uh, Your next green salad, you'll add scrumptious flavor. It's very craveable, right? That's what we love about uh, ingredients that are umami. And, and Parmesan is just the king of that. And just as you always have a bottle of wine on hand for unexpected company or a pandemic, uh, you keep cookie dough in the freezer in case of emergency, right? You should always. I keep a sharp triangle of Parmesan in my cheese drawer no matter what. Because when you can't put your finger on what it is you want to add last minute, it's often Parmesan. Now, Parmesan will make any savory dish better, more deeply flavored, in my opinion, more likely to inspire all those sometimes inappropriate noises you make when you eat something really, really good. So I say, more Parmesan, please. You'll find lots of recipes, by the way, once again, at chefjamie.com for Parmesan inspiration. And I'm sure if you uh, troll my social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen, you'll find some Parmesan inspiration there too. Okay, I'm leaving you with that burger note and asking you to grab a snack and come on back because we're dishing on how to relish rhubarb in your radio right after this. Chef Jamie Gwen, don't go away. Life, create, and savor yours. Welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. Stack the flavor cards in your favor and listen up because David Leet has a culinary lesson you do not want to miss. David is the three-time James Beard award-winning food writer and the founder of LeetsCulinaria.com, where he shares hot food and dry wit. Now, David is an expert on so many things. His blog has been much adored for its deliciousness since 1999, and I am very proud to have him as a culinary contributor on this show and to call him my friend. He is back with delicious inspiration. David Leet is here to dish. Hello, handsome. How you doing? Hello. How are you? I'm doing well. (laughs) Good. I'm glad. I'm doing well, too. Okay. When rhubarb starts showing up at the market, 
I think spring has sprung. Like that is the turning point for me. Yes, it is. Right? It's that moment when it when it appears, absolutely. Right. Now I find as the season dwindles, the rhubarb gets lighter in color. It ages essentially, right? It gets older. And so I like the bright magenta stalks. That's what I look for. And when Melissa's produce sends me rhubarb, it's always bright and red and gorgeous and it's trimmed for you. And I don't think that great cooks know, or many great cooks know, all the wonderful uses for rhubarb. And it's really easy to work with, right? If the stock has a blemish, you just remove it with the vegetable peeler. But it's a simple chop, right? What yeah, do you do? It's a simple chop. Yes, it's a simple chop. And then what I do is I also string it because I don't like some of this, uh, that sort of fibrous. Sure. So I take the, I, I go through, I cut all of my, almost all the way through to sort of that flat end. And then I use the knife's edge to pull up the fibers, and it makes it a lot easier, and it's just, it's just easier to digest. Also, too, you know, chopping it up and freezing it, it's a great thing to do, so therefore you can have rhubarb all year round. It's oh. a wonderful thing to do, fresh rhubarb. Now, that, that's smart. See, I'm always trying to um, beat the clock to savor the season, right? Like, oh, I have all this rhubarb in the fridge. I have to make a big batch of jam. But you're saying we can buy ourselves time. And freeze the raw vegetable. Because when you cook it, it tends to get soft anyway in a, in a rhubarb pie or a strawberry rhubarb pie or in jams or anything like that. So it, the texture will change a bit when you freeze it and then cook it, but it's okay because you're cooking it down anyway in whatever you make. So it's a great way to have some of that sweet tart thing all year round. Okay, I love that. That's genius. Now, it is intensely tart, and that's why I think it has... Um, it doesn't always receive a general like, let's say, but you toss it with sugar and it makes a great flavor combination too. I have seen it in everything from a savory salsa to a sweet chutney to of course, pie and shortbread or jam. And the bitterness does fade as you cook it. So it lends itself to techniques that require heat um, because it needs to be cooked down. Um, but once you cut it into one or two inch pieces, or even if you chop it smaller, you can like quarter inch pieces, you can actually put it in, in bite-sized cubes in, into your favorite baked goods. Absolutely. And you can, partially, you can partially cook them, let's say, with some sugar on the stove so they start to soften. Oh, smart. Caramelized. Too. So they start mm. to caramelize a little bit. You get a little bit of juice going on, a little bit of sort of a, a thick, simple syrup, but kind of with rhubarb juice. Oh, and that's that nice. That extra little thing, and then it finish, finishes cooking, let's say, in your, uh, in your muffins or something like that, or your cupcakes. So therefore, you get that nice little bite of, uh, of, of sweetness as well as tartness. Oh, that's really smart. Can we start with a cocktail? Because I, I, already, I, I already made myself thirsty. Um. <laughs> All right. Well, I think one of the easiest, easiest things to make as a base for so many cocktails is rhubarb vodka. Yes. Right? It's, it's basically limoncello for the rhubarb set. Right. It's, it's an infusion. That's all it is. Yeah. It's, you've got about a pound of pink rhubarb stalks, and then you have a cup and three quarters of granulated sugar and just about four cups of vodka. And then you mix it all together, and you seal it, and you let it sit for four weeks. And you stir it often. Yes. And then in the end, you strain it, and you've got this lovely pink vodka 
now let's go. What can you make with it? Oh. Cosmopolitans. You can make, uh, you know, vodka tonics with it. Everything. All your vodka drinks, but you've got that tartness oh. and that sweetness in yes. there, too. Oh. So it's a great base. That's fact, lovely. You know that might be the drink of the summer. We always have a drink of the summer. Mm-hmm. I think this might be the drink of the summer. Okay, I call that my summer sipper. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, I, and by the way, that is a compliment to pool wine. I always have a wine for the pool. That's pool wine. Oh, really? Everyone I, should have oh, pool wine. I ne- we, we just got a pool last year, so we're, we're novices at this. Pool wine. We're going to have a pool wine, and we're going to have a summer sipper. And I would love to come. Thank you. We would love that. That's a wonderful, wonderful invitation. You know, I keep infusions like this. Like when I make Kahlua at the holidays, I put it in a big jar like you have featured on the website at LC Cooks. And I close it, and then you say stir it. Well, I just shake it. So I keep it underneath the kitchen sink. Because I'm always going there for something like a trash bag or a dishwasher pellet, right? And then I just shake it up and put it back. And then four weeks later, you find it and you realize like, oh my God, I forgot this is fabulous. Yeah, Yeah, really good. Um, All right. Just a few minutes left. Let's talk pie, please. Sure. So we have a really wonderful rhubarb brown sugar pie. Oh, yes. And so basically it is the same thing, but it's got it's got a pound and a quarter of fresh rhubarb, and then it also has a, a super fine sugar, but it's got uh, some packed light brown sugar nice. in the filling. Okay. And you also sprinkle some on top. So oh, you're getting beautiful. that molasses flavor, so therefore it gives some base notes to what's going on in the pie. Oh, that's and nice. Because you have all of your, um, you know, all of your, your bright, bright, uh, flavors in there because of the rhubarb and because of the lemon juice, but this kind of balances it. It gives it um, some base, and this is from Joanne Chang, and Joanne Chang is an amazing baker. Uh, no doubt. And it is a terrific, terrific pie. And then leave us with um, a super simple jam. You call it a easy rhubarb jam. I call that a relish. I love the thickness, the viscosity of it. Yes. And yes. it's a very old-fashioned recipe process. Very old-fashioned. The method, yeah. Yes, you take it and you cook it down with some granulated sugar <laughs> and this cold water and there's lemon and it's half, halved and juiced into it. And you just cook it and then you just let it... And cook uh, and it and cook it, it and yeah, cook it. Until it gets thick. Yeah. And it doesn't get, you know, it's, it's not like a jam where you kind of have kind of that uh, that clearness that you have with like a strawberry. It, it, it's very... Um, it does look much more like a relish. A compote just, or, yes. Yep. And then you just, you know, you uh, puree it and you put it in your jars and you don't even, uh, you don't even have to do a water bath on it. And again, you spread it on anything that you want. Mm, So good. I'm going to spread it on my elbow and let you know how it is. (laughs) Or maybe the back of my hand. Um, Or maybe on Jagger's elbow. Or maybe on Jagger's elbow. That's what I'm going to do. It's going to be really, it's going to be really good because I tell him all the time he's delicious and he is. Oh, there you go. Yeah, no doubt. Thank you for celebrating rhubarb with us. Oh, my pleasure. I love talking food with you. You know that. And thank you for coming back to share your passion. You can find David Leet's Daily Dish of Deliciousness at lccooks.com. That's the shortcut to leetsculinaria.com. Follow David on social at David Leet, L-E-I-T-E, and catch him here again because there's always something scrumptious to learn about from him. David, thank you as always. My pleasure. Big hugs, my friend. There is more fabulous food in your radio right after this.
and welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We're toasting with wine today with Paul Callum Carrion, and I am so thirsty for it. Paul is the second generation president and owner of the original Wine of the Month Club, having taken over the business from his dad, Paul Sr., who still enjoys a great glass of wine at age 92 today. Paul has tasted upwards of 100,000 wines, truly making him an expert. And his podcast, which is fabulous, called Wine Talks, shares insight into the wonderful world of wine. I'm proud to call him my friend, and I always learn so much when we dish so I am delighted to welcome you back to the show. Okay, what's what's the spring sipper, Paul? What what have you been drinking? Should I say something like whatever I keep my hands on? <laughs> Whatever's open. <laughs> so, <laughs> actually, that's a, a good good question. You know what I've really really been fascinated with and enjoyed lately is that you know the the advent of rosé in America is you know kind of new. Which it's more new on the West Coast than it is on the East Coast, but we're starting to find all kinds of wine regions around the world with their own sort of unique rosés and experiencing a Tuscan rosé or a Bordeaux rosé or one from Sardinia is becoming quite interesting. And I think people look at rosé as just, you know, the Americans for sure look at it as white Zinfandel, something sweet from Beringer. Oh, but it isn't. But in reality, they can be quite complex and voluminous in your mouth. And that's been sort of the fun track we've been doing lately. Yeah, I love that. Oh, I, I think, first of all, rosé is oftentimes, maybe most often, very food-friendly. And you know that's my, always my focus. So I think with summer grilling approaching, um, I love to pour rosé. And I find that fascinating that we're drinking rosé from around the world when it's always been considered French rosé as the, you know, elite choice. Speaking of rosé, um, as we embark on summer, how do you feel about piscine de rosé? Because my memories of France of drinking rosé on ice in a big balloon glass are very wonderful, by the way. Well, I think, I think your description of it just now just evoked all kinds of memories and, and visions of sitting on the brasserie, which yes. is fortunately right now with, uh, with COVID in, in London, with, in Paris and the rest of France, is sort of, they're still under kind of a lockdown. But eventually, yes. we'll be going back to that. You know, it's funny you ask that question because people look at me when I'm at the house and somebody asks for a glass of rosé or a white wine and I don't have it chilled. I will put it in my martini mixer with ice. And in this case, I'll swirl it around and, and strain it through, and they don't know the difference. But uh, no reason why I could just leave it there. Here's the thing about ice, though. It's got to be good, clean ice. Otherwise, you influence the quality of the wine. And too many people take the ice out of their refrigerator, which is stale, right? and throw it in their glass. And all of a sudden, the wine's tainted. It's kind of like having a dirty wine glass or one that's not properly cleaned. Hmm. And then all of a sudden, now you're getting aroma and character from the dirty ice. So sure. be careful for that. Yeah, you make such, that's such a good point. It's such good insight. And, you know, I think to add an ice cube or two, which I know used to be such a faux pas, and today is, I think, much more accepted, especially because we know that the French love to drink piscine de rosé, and it's considered swimming pool wine. And I think it's perfect pool wine, by the way. Um, but I will look to my um, whiskey Ice, you know, I'll make spheres or yes. squares, right? That's clean ice. 
I will yes. look to that ice. Thank you. And the martini shaker idea is genius. What a fabulous way to quickly chill down a glass of wine. Fabulous. Okay. Now that we're on the glass subject, I have a favorite wine glass. I actually have lots of them. I use a stemless glass on a daily basis because I think it's easy to grip and set down on the counter and I can be a little rough with it. But I have a New York experience at what was the Four Seasons restaurant and is now the grill in the Seagram's building that I will never forget. I sat down for lunch with my mom, special occasion on a trip to NYC, and ordered a glass of Chardonnay at the bar. And they delivered it in what is, I think, one of the most luxurious wine glasses I have ever put to my lips. And they're... I, 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 I ordered, they were actually a gift to me from my mom. I have no association with this company, but it's called Zalto, Mm Z-A-L-T-O. And Mm -hmm. it is the thinnest rim and this beautiful, thin, elegant stem. And for me, Paul, it speaks to the fact that the glass matters. It it totally matters. Totally. here's, Here's how I look at those kinds of experiments, right? People will say, well, it's the same wine that's in the glass it does it taste different and the question is not does it taste different is the experience different and so if you take that wonderful chardonnay you had in new york and put it in that very glass and put next to it uh, a tumbler from a diner a plastic camera <laughs> tumbler right uh, it's the same wine but you will definitely experience a different sensation when tasting them and i've i've done i've done both i put them next to each other if you take lafitte ross shield and put it in a can it's the same Lafitte Rush Shield, but you are going to experience a different level of, of ethereal experience. So it's very important because, one, that kind of glass has to be hand-blown. You can't machine-make glass that thin. And right. I've had wine from that very glass in New York as well in a wine-tasting bar. Huh. And it, the property to come home and search for machine-made glasses, which are less money, uh, in that thickness and they don't exist they can't you just can't do it It has to be hand-blown interesting but you know the the stem i I just got done with a podcast with dr Catherine larson she has curated the the corning museum of glass uh history of wine and glass and it's a fascinating subject we could talk forever about it right the the stemmed glassware that you're experiencing goes back about 1500 years so if you if you compare that to let's say the wine bottle which we take for granted it's only about 300 years old Huh. So the idea to experience wine in a glass rather than a ceramic, you know, vessel jug, or whatever they were using <laughs> right. back then, um, is, I think, was discovered long before you and I got to experience it. In other words, this idea of experiencing wine in the proper vessel is pretty old, and I think humans before us have understood that it's it's an important part of our experience. Yeah, and and I think we've come a long way with it, too. There are philosophies about wine glasses that abound. And you enlightened me to this podcast of yours and the conversation. And um, I I would love for you to share more because this is a a curated exhibit, in fact, for uh, onophiles and true wine lovers. This is a really special experience, never been done before. So you'll tell us about it. But 
there are many people that believe the specific shape that matches each variety of wine when it comes to glassware is very important. There are schools of thought that you use the glass that you like, the one that you can get your nose into, right? Or you sip from what pleases you. Like I talk about that particular glass that just feels so elegant to me. I have two of them. I like tiptoe around with them. I savor these glasses. Mm -hmm. Um, But It really is fascinating to think where we've come from and, as you said, the history and how far we've we've come as well when it comes to glassware. This uh, this curated exhibit. Tell us more about it, because it is the history, as you say, from what uh, the 1700s. Right. So, yeah, you go back 1500 years, you start seeing stemmed glassware. But what's interesting, I was and I sort of extrapolated this from our conversation. I listened to it again this morning. Hmm. And wine in the early days was sweet, and so you didn't drink a lot of it. So the glasses were smaller, and so it seems to me that the evolution of the glass is, has evolved in parallel with the kinds of things we're drinking. We're always trying to refine things. The basic premise of wine has always been the same as fermented wine, grape juice. But uh, the experience of, and the kinds of things that we've been drinking have evolved with the glass. Right. So and I'm not sure which came first. Uh, but there, it's relatively new, the concept of a bulbous a glass for Chardonnays and Pinot Noirs and a taller, narrower glass, the Claret saw glass for Burgundies and for Bordeaux and, and Sauvignon Blanc. So that, that's kind of new. That's not exactly uh, old uh, history. We sort of created that ourselves, and we created that to maybe maximize the exposure of air to the wine. So we want to have more surface of air, of wine to the air, you know, in a bulbous glass than we do in another glass. Is that critical to it? I, I'm not totally convinced of that. I, I think what you said is more accurate. I drink from what I like and what makes you feel good. Um, I think if you're sitting in front of the Parthenon and having a glass of your favorite Italian red mm. uh, uh, as the sun sets over the Parthenon and you're drinking from a, a high ball you know, or you're drinking from a low ball, <laughs> that experience is probably pretty good too. Yeah, uh, pr- probably, no doubt. Uh, Paul, I, I would like this conversation to continue. I, I want to talk about glassware specifically, and then we'll get deeper into, it's called Fire and Vine, right? The story of glass right. and wine. And, and it is a curated exhibit at the Corning Museum of Glass that starts up in July. So we'll, we'll touch more on it. Please don't go away. You'll stay here. I'm here. Don't go. Don't go. There is more with Paul Callum Carrion, you and me, Chef Jamie Gwen. Just after this, don't go away. We're dishing on wine and the glass and your wine collection because it's true. Wine glasses can enhance the experience of a glass of wine. And so uh, our resident wine expert is in-house. Paul Callum Carrion is here, the president and owner of the original Wine of the Month Club and uh, truly 
uh, considered one of the finest expert palates when it comes to wine, uh, I would venture to say not only in the U.S., but worldwide. Um, Paul, when it comes to the glassware, we just left off talking about there are different styles. Let's speak more specifically to aeration, right? The, the larger glass or the bulbous style glass was created to better the bouquet or the nose of the wine. So you gained more from the experience. It also opens up the wine, right? I mean, we know there's gadgets galore today to aerate wine. I, I've seen Psalms shake a decanter to aerate wine. I mean, some people will do anything. Well, if you, ta- you know, we talk about extremes and one extreme of tasting wine is put it in one of your beautiful glasses and the other would be put it in a plastic tumbler. The same is with aeration. You, know, you could put it in a, in a Vitamix and, and swirl that thing up at 15,000 RPM and you're going to aerate pretty quickly. Wait, have you done that? Versus, uh, I've not done it. I've just seen it done and I've been wanting to do it, but it's just, a, it's sort of the extreme, right? We're going to, we're going to try to aerate and see what happens. Right. Um, and you're, you're right on with the glasses, the, the bulbous glass that has more surface area. Let's, Look at it another way. If you open a bottle of wine, you say, I'd like to have this wine aerate itself. Just leaving it in the bottle upright on your table is going to expose about three-quarters of an inch of the wine to the air. So you're really not doing anything. Right, not much. Uh, this is why and one of the reasons we decant is the decanters have a bulbous bottom and that more of the air touches, more of the wine touches the air and, and it aerates, as well as as you pour, it aerates. And that is sufficient enough, by the way, all the gadgets you see, uh, just pouring the bottle of wine into a decanter is enough to aerate it to maximize the value. Because the so, surface area of the wine as you pour gets complete exposure. Correct. Okay. When it comes to glassware, I'm not so sure, I'm convinced, except that there is an INAO, the International Association of Engineers, something, that created a glass specifically for tasting. And it looks like nothing like any of the glasses you and I would drink from. For one, I have a big nose that doesn't fit in the rim. <laughs> However, it does, it does bring the aroma and the bouquet to that point. And so that it has a, the, the experience of smelling the wine is increased, dramatically increased by having the proper shaped glass for that. And that's strictly See. a modern thing. That's strictly a bunch of engineers sitting down and trying to decide how they're going to get the aroma to the top. Uh, that's for us geeks. Yes, but, but when it comes to what you... Yeah, go ahead. go ahead. No, go ahead. But when it comes to what you want to experience, mm-hmm. sitting on the on your veranda, if you have if you have one, and tasting a glass of wine, that I think that's rather personal. I agree with you, and that's why I think there are so many glasses out there and so many preferences, and why I say we've come a long way because the choices are endless today, and you should sip from what suits you, really. I mean, my Zalto glass, and I hate to hammer it home, but I, I'm really in love with this glass is supposedly created as a universal wine glass, red or white. And Mm -hmm. it is a Psalm favorite because they say that the shape brings out the best flavor and aroma. So, you know, it is all about the shape of the glass. Um, But it suits me. I like everything about it from not only what it does for the wine, but also how it feels and how the lip feels when it touches my lips, right? I mean, that's really what it's all about. Go back to the exhibit because I think it's so interesting to see like the original wine jug or wine bottle or how far the decanter has come. This is amazing. uh, You 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 wouldn't believe 
I could have gone for two hours with her because there's so much to talk about. And one of the things that we haven't discussed is the bottle. You know, the bottle, the bottle is kind of relatively new. And if you go back uh, and, li- and read the book of Vuv Clicquot, uh, Widow Clicquot, you'll, you'll read that she was struggling with getting champagne to Russia because the glass, the, the bottles they were making in France at the time, could not handle the trip. And so they would, you know, tongue-in-cheek, you know, cross their fingers, put the wine on a boat, and take it to Russia and hope that it was still there when they got there. And so that was rather precarious. And what happened was the English figured out that coal-fired glass furnaces created hotter fire, created stronger glass. And so now all of a sudden glass bottles were made in England, uh, boated to France, bottled champagne, and then, of course, the English becoming quite the consumer of champagne, shipped back to them. So the French did not figure it out that how to make uh, a glass bottle Wow. Take on the atmospheric pressure of champagne. Huh. Isn't Can't that take am- it for granted? No, <laughs> isn't that amazing? Thank you for bringing us insight and um, for elevating the wine experience. You always do. It's a tough job, right, my friend? Yeah, it's so That's hard. Somebody has to. Do I know. It's like having a personal <laughs> sommelier. I love it. You can learn more at wineofthemonthclub.com. Wineofthemonthclub.com, right? That's correct. Okay, good. I'll see you next month. Cheers to you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Paul And so that brings us to the end of another hour of insightful information to make every day more delicious. At least I hope that you thought so. You will find me serving up seconds at chefjamie.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at chefjamiegwen with my sometimes shameless but always daily dish. And I'll leave you with my last bite for the hour, my last ounce or tidbit of gastronomic inspiration. It's guilt-free, gluten-free, dairy-free, and sugar-free. And you're wondering, how could it be good? But it's so good. The cake-in-a-mug trend continues. But I was challenged to make a gluten-free, dairy-free version. And I have to tell you, it turned out decadently. It is the ultimate molten chocolate cake in a mug. You start with an egg. You use a sugar substitute like stevia. I use almond milk or your milk of choice. So you could make it dairy if you like. A little bit of baking powder for loft, a little bit of coconut flour for depth, and then cocoa powder for sure for chocolate, and then a square of dark chocolate because who doesn't love a square of dark chocolate? A minute and 30 seconds later, you have cake. And if you wait a minute, because it needs to set and molten, then you can indulge. I will post the recipe once again um, on my social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen, the ultimate molten chocolate cake in a mug straight from the microwave. And I uh, will ask and hope that you will join me here next weekend at the table. I thank you for listening. I hope that you are healthy and safe and wearing a mask and getting a vaccine. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off and I hope you continue to eat well. Well.